Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. This episode is the start of season four, and since we're running parallel to award season, we'll take the opportunity to highlight some of the nominees with a below-the-line point of view. To kick things off, we're going to discuss projects nominated by the Directors Guild of America, or DGA, for Outstanding Directorial Achievement. This will be the first of three episodes focused on the DGA. We're not going to intentionally spoil anything, but consider this a spoiler warning nonetheless. First things first, however, let me introduce today's panel. Katie Carroll, you're a member of the Directors Guild, currently working as a first AD in Mexico from where you're joining us, and a regular guest here on Below the Line. Welcome back. Thanks, Kid. Glad to be here. Katie, glad you're here as well. Next, Bill Hardy, you're also a member of the DGA based on the East Coast, and you've also joined us here on Below the Line a couple of times. Again, welcome back. Hi, Skid. Yes, I have. Yes. Glad to be here. Glad you're here, Bill. And finally, in our fourth chair, Sean O'Banion, you are not a member of the DGA, but you are a member of the Producers Guild of America. You're currently based in Prague from where you're joining us. And as a bonus, you are the project coordinator for Post on Jojo Rabbit. Oh, and you're making your second appearance here on Below the Line. Once again, welcome. I am. Thanks very much for having me, Skid. All right. So today we're going to focus on the granddaddy of DGA Awards, theatrical feature film. It's the oldest of the competitive categories. It was first awarded in 1949, and it often foreshadows who will win the Academy Award for Best Director. Before we list the nominees, let me ask the panel, who of you has actually attended the DGA Awards ceremony as either a nominee or a guest? Uh, I've been twice now. I was lucky enough to work on two features that were nominated, and the studio bought a table, so I got to go. I don't think if the studio had bought a table that I would have sprung for the ticket. <laughs> Sean, have you ever gone as anybody's guest or I don't know, have you made it have you made it to the award ceremony itself? No, never been myself. How about you, Bill? I did. I got to go uh I guess it was 2001. I worked on a uh TV movie back when that was a thing. Um that got nominated. Yeah, I mean, Bill, that is still a thing. We're not going to talk about it today, but that is uh we'll get I was to that just, I, next I just, time. I always think of like, I start to say movie of the week and then I'm like, you know, millennials don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, millennials, you can uh, look that up on uh, Wikipedia as well. <laughs> Bill, that brings up a good point that for the DGA awards, it's not just the director who is nominated, but his entire directorial team. When you talk, we talk about attending ourselves and, and I've been a couple of times, but I was fortunate enough to be on a team as well that got nominated. The entire folks have the opportunity to win the awards, even if you don't show up in person. And I didn't, and I was a PA at the time. So I was being blessed by the courtesy of uh, Jerry Grandy and Daryl Woodard. And who was the second second? He's going to get really mad at me probably, but oh well. But yeah, we were all, I mean, and it makes me wonder whether there is a universal feeling amongst the AD staff in the audience of the dinner whether they're going to storm the stage if their uh, movie wins. I mean, that was a conversation for us. There was not a, did we get invited? It was a, are we all going to run up there? And then, of course, there was the amongst the PAs, do we get to go too? Oh, yeah, you're the team, man. You're the team. We got to go. So that was, you know, and some guys brought their teams up on, some guys bring their team, and folks, I should say, guys and gals. Thank you. Uh, bring their uh, teams up on stage and some don't. And, you know, the ADs just uh, all look at them a little sideways. So it sounds like you, <laughs> I, Bill, it sounds like you didn't win. 
No, we didn't. So, <laughs> so it was all theoretical at that point. All right, well, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the nominees for this year. First, in theatrical feature film, five nominees. First was Bong Joon-ho for Parasite. Next, Sam Mendes for 1917. Then Martin Scorsese for The Irishman. Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then finally, Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit. Okay, let's discuss them in order. First, has everybody seen Parasite? Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay, good. Four out of four on Parasite. Thoughts from uh, AD directorial view, guys? What do you think? I mean, I always watch a movie first at just as a viewer, and I get into it, and I loved the movie. The movie was so well done, and there's times when it's like, so funny and so sad and so scary. It just, it has a little bit, and I, so I just loved everything about it. And then I think back about how hard it would be to shoot. And, and I mean, I was looking at that rainstorm when I'm watching it, like, oh God, that would have sucked to film in during that rainstorm. But other than that, I, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of fun would have been to work on that. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, th- I also loved this movie. I think Parasite is probably my pick of the year in a, in a lot of categories. But to your point, the way it comes together, all the decisions that the director is making, and then there are some major scenes that I imagine are extremely difficult to film, execute and capture, but yet, in my opinion, are captured perfectly for this. I mean, I think of the toilet scene. Like, that was unbelievably disgusting and hysterical to watch, but I can't even fathom what it was like to be on set that day because it just looks like it smells. You know it doesn't, but it just looks like it smells. So on set, it had to just feel like it smelled. I always feel like I'm the outsider when people start talking about Parasite because I, I'm, even, I'm closing my eyes talking about it because I'm embarrassed to say it. I didn't, I didn't really get it. I mean, I got it. And then by the end of it, I was like, are we being beaten over the head? Yes, I get it. They're literally living beneath the surface and everybody's above them and their house is filled with shit. And I'm like, (laughs) we're I'm being beat over the head with the point. I, I love Snowpiercer. Like I get this guy's weird alternative look at uh, the class warfare, but I, it just lost me. I go back and forth on, on uh, Bong Joon-ho. In in this case, I'm, I'm probably somewhere between you, Bill and, and the rest of the panel because I think, well, part of it is that I saw it after there was so much hype on it because I'm, I'm in Europe. I got my screener way late, watched it, and I was kind of like, yeah, okay, it was cool. I was, it was, it's, you know, it's a good movie. I wasn't blown away. I did subsequently read some stuff about it where I was like, oh, they built that entire house specifically for the film, and they literally chose where the picture window would be and where the backyard would be for the light and all this kind of stuff. I was like, okay, logistically, it's pretty, it is impressive, though, you know, in my opinion, not, not the most logistically impressive of the year. And I guess that might actually be the caveat to my statement is that I, you know, production value out the wazoo for sure. Like, I'm definitely, I was fascinated with the layout of the, the main house. And like, I, you know, it's just, it took a while to get there. It, took, it was an hour before, you know, and of course I just saw Skid and I'm like, I'm not talking about the AD's perspective, but I guess I am talking about the AD's perspective. I mean, like, you know, anything, I mean, Bill, it's all there's a lot of rain, there's a <laughs> lot of rain in this movie. And that is, you know, that is a nightmare. You see that I was just watching something the other day, just any actor in the rain, you're like, 
I just start seeing their hair having to get redone and change the clothes. And can they please just all right, do we have to see them get wet? Can they already be wet? Let's, uh, let's already be wet. I'm already, you know, we're all wet. Why can't he just be wet? Why does he get to go dry off? Sorry. <laughs> no need to be. Sorry, that's a good point when we watch these things. And to, to Gay's point, sometimes you watch a film. I love when I do watch a film and I forget that I am or was an AD and can look at it and just enjoy the movie for what it is. And so I think that Parasite, and it's not the only movie for me on this list, that when I do have that sort of escape, I really, really enjoy those movies. And then I am willing to watch them again, particularly in this case. And I did watch Parasite again and try to notice like how it all came together and what decisions are being made and make the point about the house and there, you know, the, the parallels between their house and then the underground house where they have their, you know, water and toilet incidents and all of that. And it's, you know, and I think it's impressive on this. I I'll, before we get too far out, I did not enjoy Snowpiercer as much, but not because of the directorial point of view, but mostly I just didn't believe that Captain America was sitting in the back all downtrodden and, you know. Captain America and thing. You got to remember, <laughs> you got to keep your uh, stars crossed. There. And, and they're what uh, they're fighting their way to, through. Uh, they're fighting from Dr. Strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the master I can't remember her name. What's her name? Hilda Swinton. Hilda. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Been the, a big uh, fan. The ancient one, I think she plays in Doctor Strange. Yes, yeah, there so you go. Over that. And he didn't play Thing, he played Human Torch in that Miss... Uh, no, I, didn't he, he play... No, no Michael Chiklis. Michael Chiklis was Michael Chiklis played Thing. Oh, no, that's the other... But those yeah. are the other Fantastic Four. I'm talking about the new one that nobody saw. Jamie Bell is Thing. Oh, Michael, yeah. Michael B. Jordan... Michael B. Jordan is right. Human Torch. Yeah, yes. I did see that, and I and I forgot about it. All right, so that's, that, <laughs> luckily as that's Martin not Scorsese said, we shouldn't be talking about those <laughs> movies. Yeah, we'll get to uh, we'll get to Martin Scorsese in a, in a second. So, uh, so Parasite, yes, as a film, I, I agree. I think it's going to be divisive as far as um, the effort that went into it. Probably get my vote, but again, we're having a conversation. Maybe you guys will convince me on one of the others. Let's move on from there. Let's talk about Sam Mendes and 1917. I mean, you know, and I think this is one that you experience. It didn't hit me until the final sprint, that last uh, 25 minutes or so, where I literally realized that my jaw was hanging open. And then the AD thoughts hit me because I'm like, this is dawn. You shoot this. There, you got one time. This is one shot. You got 20 minutes to shoot this once a day, and that's when you do it. I, I can't wait for the – I got to find my American cinematographer on this one because I got – you know, I don't – you know, I, I want to read about this one for sure. To be honest, I wasn't intrigued to see it at first. I'm not a huge fan of war movies. There's, it's rare that one says something different than all of the other war movies. I, I, just, I start to get bored with them because I don't find them interesting. And then I heard about the technical difficulties, and it's all one one or – and I am a sucker for a one -er. So I'm like, okay, so I'll watch the screener. And at first, I just I watched for the cut points. And I thought, okay, this is really good as its story starts. And I'm watching it from a technical point of view. And then I, only now and then did I still keep watching it from a technical point of view. And I got into the story. And I, I thought the two young actors were fantastic. I'm a little bummed they're not getting more publicity for their work and more their names getting out there more. Maybe they are and I'm missing it. But um, it's more about Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins, who did a fantastic job. It's a beautiful film. 
And it's not like other war movies in that it's not like you don't lose track of who people are. You have two heroes, you know who those heroes are, and you follow them. So it's a very, very simple story, which I also like a lot. I, I definitely was, when I first heard about the movie, I'm a Sam Mendes fan, but you know, you say Roger Deakins to me and I'm like, sold, I'll go. I don't care what it is. Um, and it was sort of like, like you, Bill, I, I, I was blown away by the movie, especially the, the aspect of making it seem like a one-er. Um, and I'm such a crazy film nut that I immediately after the movie went digging through YouTube and looking for making of footage and BTS stuff. And, you know, heard those two actors, George Mackay, and I forget the other actor's name, but he's from Game of Thrones. And they were talking about how literally because of the timing, you know, there's the, the, the sort of abandoned farmhouse with the cherry orchard, that, that that cherry orchard and house had to be exactly the right amount of steps for them wow. to make it within that sequence. So it was rehearsed like seven months earlier. And then it was built to spec so that they could take whatever it was, 56 steps from the wall to the house. Wow. Yeah, just nuts. So in terms of like, you know, ABs and scheduling and I mean, just blew my mind. I mean, and I also I, look at it, sorry, I also look at it from a scheduling point of view. It's like, okay, well, we spent two months on this one. Then we spent two months in this one. You kind of shoot it in order. So scheduling, it's almost a little easier to some extent. It's just the organization on the day. It, it, it reminded me a bit of the stories you hear from like Coppola and, and Apocalypse Now because they were saying that they had to wait for overcast skies, constantly waiting for overcast. And they would just be sort of standing there looking at clouds and, and doing the opposite of what we normally do, which is like waiting on the cloud to move. Okay, now we can go. For them, it was like, it's too bright, it's too sunny. We need, we need bad weather. You know, this is one, and going back to what you said, Katie, where I actually um, did not know about the nature of the filming ahead of time. I had similar thoughts when I saw there was gonna be a war movie in 1917. I do enjoy war movies and I enjoyed Dunkirk very much. Uh, I guess that was last year, but I thought I don't need that again for World War I. And again, but the I didn't you just get into the theater and I saw the previews about these two guys going through that. Truthfully, I somebody asked me afterwards and I could not recall that it was done as a one -er. In other words, I wasn't watching that from the beginning. And while normally those sort of things catch my attention, the second time I watched it, I paid a lot more attention to, to how they did it. But I was so immersed in the story that it didn't occur to me that we're practically in real time. Now there's a bit where somebody's knocked out and I think it you know, jumps some at that point, obviously. But um, I didn't notice the first time I watched it. Like that was that immersive for me, which to its credit. I slipped in and out and I will say this a definite AD perspective. I start and I was like, oh, look how they have to squeeze past one another and trench warfare is so horrible. And then it hit me, what about the reset? All these fucking people have to walk <laughs> past one another and rush and in the mud. And I kept seeing the mud on all the actors' shoes. And I was like, what shoes would I wear for this? This would be horrible. <laughs> And then I went, stop thinking about that shit. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So for folks who don't know, something like this, when, when you're doing a one -er, I mean, basically you're not interrupting the camera. Now, I want to discuss in more detail, since we all watched for that, there, there are some points where it looks like they're not stopping, but clearly I think they are. And we can talk about what may or may not be visual. And if you guys have done some reading, yeah, share on that. I haven't done any reading on the specifics. But in general, though, they're sitting in the field, they get up, 
cameras on them the whole time and they walk down in the trench. So even just that, all those people have to be in position ahead of time, know exactly where to cross. And I work with a lot of background. I love working with background, but this kind of challenge, like what if somebody messes that up? Like that's like somebody like either misses their cue or, and it's not just, and if you pay attention, it's not just them walking through, but the guy carrying the camera has to, and you can see where the people are getting out of his way or he does some moving around folks in a way that generally through crowds that I thought was really, really effective to keep you there while they're doing all this logistics of actually getting, getting through. Well, George uh, Mackay, who, who is the actor who does that big climactic run that you see in the trailers, it's not a spoiler. Um, he was on, uh, I think, Fallon the other night. And in that sequence, um, he was supposed to get hit by one stunt guy, sort of like bumped, you know, because um, he's up on the ledge and they come over the rim. And I was go wondering the, if they that go one into was a, They go not. into a somersault. Yeah, yeah so there was, was supposed oh, to be, there was supposed to be one. Man must have been a pain. Yeah. Well, but here's the thing. In that sequence, he gets hit twice. The first guy takes him down, like trips him, and that was a background artist. The second guy is the stuntman. <laughs> oh my God. I saw him when I watched that. I was like, was that planned or not? And did the actor just keep going? I was like, yeah. it was so well done. I'm like, I can't tell if that was planned or not. I'm going to yeah, guess. Yeah, they, they literally... They One literally of those asked two him. Was not planned. Fallon said, so wait a minute. So, I mean, what are you doing? He's like, we're doing a movie where every take, you know, is like eight minutes long. You just got to keep going. So I just got back up and ran. <laughs> like, wow. That's so awesome. good. <laughs> That's right up there with, uh, I'm walking here on the taxi cab. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, and then, I mean, obviously a lot of respect for the setup, for the filming, for everything the ADs had to go through. Cynically, though, let's talk about where there were clearly some cuts. I, any, I, I think that any time you don't actually see the actors, we're doing something digital. Like that's basically like any like when they're going up the hill or even when they go to one side and we go to the other side. I think not in every case, possibly, but there's certainly an opportunity to do digital getting across when you're cutting between actors or, you know, even turning inside some of the dark areas when they're underground. That would be my thought. And again, that doesn't take anything away from it. But you, you can't shoot for an hour with no breaks. Like it's just not feasible the waste that it would be for every time something went wrong. But what did you guys notice? What did you think? Well, I thought the first one that you see was the most obvious when they go down into, into the bunker. The yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's almost like the level of blackness changed a little bit. That, so that one was, to me yeah. was the most obvious. That was a, that was a stage bit. Well, and but yeah. and you gotta and you gotta think about whether you're gonna have Colin Firth sitting there for 15 minutes from, from exactly. <laughs> like he's just gonna wait for 15 okay, minutes wanna, while okay, cut early. Next yeah. reset. Colin, I want to put Colin in the van from base camp when we call rolling <laughs> on this take <laughs> and have him on his mark about five minutes later. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then the other obvious one was the uh, the jumping into the river with the water. That was clearly, but oh, yeah. I mean, and there are a few others that were like, oh, that could have been, but it might not have been. But those to me just kind of almost jumped. But other than that, I thought it was pretty well done. The there, was one, the there was one foreground wipe where I yes. was like, yes, I just think that entire object is fake. Like I was like that. I feel like the lighting on that object is the same as one of the uh, beast that got added in the reissue of Star Wars. Like I was like, <laughs> oh, that 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 whole thing isn't there. But nobody yeah. notices that but us. Yeah. Well, no. well, and I'm sure you know. And Roger Deakins. Yeah. 
<laughs> and and only and me only on a second viewing. Again, like the first time I watched that movie, I just I was just carried with them the entire time. The the rats are digital, don't you think? Like entirely, or do you think they're acting against them? Or what's that's a that's a tough little bit there to planning that kind of shot with animals is even more difficult. Yeah. So I'm guessing that the rats are digital, but I don't know. And then of course there's some explosions that also I think give you an opportunity to do some resetting if you need to, because I don't think your actual actors are going to be that close to some of the explosive stuff they did. But like I said, I wasn't there. Yeah. I think probably the, the animals are CG. Some of the explosions I would say are CG, but in looking at some of the behind the scenes stuff, for example, that, that last run, mm -hmm. um, his timing was delayed because of the background guy that tripped him. And there's a real little mortar going off there, you know, but again, like, you know, you look at movies like Birdman or uh, certain things like that. I, I worked for the director of atonement, which has a nice one in it. And at the end of it, there's some CGI magic just because somebody left like a styrofoam cup and, in, in, you know, something in there in Dunkirk, you know? So, I mean, they're doing, they've, they've never sort of tried to say, there is a film called The Russian Ark. I don't know if you guys know it, but that, is, that actually is the entire movie is a one arc. You know, so well, that's like, in the museum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but I, it's, it's on my massive list of a thousand movies to watch. <laughs> yeah, so, point. you know, but the Russian Ark, pretty much that was their whole thing was like the entire film is a one -er. and And what Mendes and his team have done is they're not trying to say it's a one -er, but they just want you to experience as one as one journey. So I think it's pretty fantastic. And I think on Russian art, they just had extra background and they just executed people that got it wrong each day. So brought folks in so they could just run through that until they got it right. So that was, uh, yeah, I, I, I forget when Russian art came out, but yeah, that's worth checking out. I have seen it, but not so recently that I remember all the specifics. All right. Well, you guys might've convinced me to put 1970 to the top of this category for me, but let's move on and talk about The Irishman directed by Martin Scorsese. A lot I've of talk here. Sorry, I have seen half of it. That was the only one I hadn't seen. So I made a point this week, also just because I have no patience to sit down for a three and a half hour movie. And so I like this week, I thought, okay, I'll sit down, I'll watch an hour a night before I go to bed. And then last night, I went out to dinner with friends and had a couple of drinks. So I'm an hour and I'm like two hours into it. And so I know all about it. I've seen the first two hours. I haven't seen the last hour and a half. I hate to say it, but I feel like you you should vote having seen the first two hours, <laughs> not having seen the full thing. I, that's well, I kind of know where my vote is going, and I'm still not changing it based on the I first mean, two hours. So. <laughs> I, I love Marty movies. Who doesn't? Of course. I I mean, the the AD conversation for those. I mean, talk about oneers. Like, nobody was really trying it until 90, you know, until, the, you know, well, that's not true. That's a horrible statement. Scratch that from the record, please. <laughs> but that's the one that, that's the first, I mean, I guess I was, I had just started film school right after that too. And my teacher was so upset that Goodfellas had lost to Dances with Wolves. We talked about it all the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, I feel like Netflix, the format is just presented him with a opportunity to run too long. Yeah. It's a, uh, and, and I feel like, the guys still move like they're 65 and 75, even when they're supposed to be 40. They talk about it in uh, an interview that they did for Netflix. And it's, and they were like, and then we solved it. 
I'm like, <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. You're all res respected artists, but no, I don't think you did. Yeah, the, the scene where the scene where De Niro's like curb stomping the guy, I'm like, oh, he can barely keep his balance. <laughs> I had the exact same thought. Like he's taking a minute before he lifts one leg up to make sure his balance is still there. Like no 30-year-old does that. They just kick. Yeah. <laughs> but other, you know, if once you can figure out how to, uh, well, I guess you can move people's legs with computers instead of just changing their faces. You know, we should probably keep. Uh, casting younger actors and older actors in the same movie. Well, to that point, though, right? Like a Gemini Man with Will Smith and his computer double did not is not getting a lot of nominations this year for such on that. So, like, it is possible now, but yeah, what? Uh, well, I mean, here's here, part of that though is I mean, Will's out on the press tour for Bad Boys for Life now, and have you seen him? I mean, he's like 54, but he looks 30. So yeah. like, what they didn't have to see GM in <laughs> Gemini Man. Like he could have just played both roles. It's insane. <laughs> added gray to his hair, took away gray from his hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he looks I, amazing now. I think the controversy around Martin Scorsese, and as we mentioned earlier, he not a fan of the franchise. I don't. I think he's talking more about these franchise movies and sort of over in general and buying cinema. But I, I think sort of what undercuts what he's saying is that this very much feels like a greatest hits movie for Scorsese. Like he's revisiting ground where he's done great work, but I didn't find that he did something particularly new with it. Now that being said, from the uh, AD perspective and the challenges there, again, I don't think he's getting people really pushing back, not just on the timing, but on some of the other stuff. I, I feel like in this movie, I saw scenes that didn't even quite edit properly. Like some of the driving stuff, what's outside the car and the point of view of the car, like the, the road lines don't quite match up properly in ways that just seem to really take me out of it. I did see this in the theater at a screening. It was really long. I couldn't get anybody to go with me. Um, and I was just there by myself. And uh, I don't know if that's a, that's probably a better experience. And I started crying at the two hour point. Just because I was alone. <laughs> well, I mean, by the way, we're, uh, I'm sure you're going to get to in a second, Skid, with the, with the next nominee, but, that is, uh, I don't know about for you guys, we'll, we'll talk about, but for me, that's basically a three-hour movie as well, and I never felt it. Whereas with Irishman, and I didn't get to see it in theater, I saw it at home, but even in my home where I thought, like, you know, I could pause this at any time, I still felt it was incredibly long. Like, I felt that time. And I feel like the point of the film was to be about an old man full of regret, alone, you know? Which, which is like where they're building to this whole time. But you just have to go through so much to get there. And even tonally in the beginning, there's a lot of stuff going on that you're like, am I, am I meant to be laughing? Am I meant to be emotionally affected by, by what's happening to these people, the little subtitles that come up and stuff? Right, and I there's don't know. time jumps that with the makeup, like making Robert De Niro look 40 versus look 30, it's almost the same. So I'm like, wait, are we, which time period are we in? Have they known each other a month or 10 years? I, I lost track and there's, because they're not popping years up, you're supposed to just know by the clothing, but by the clothing, I can't tell if it's 1955 or 1962. It's relatively the same to me. So <laughs> like, I, I'm like, I, I'm losing track of where we are in the story. And if, when I'm spending more time trying to figure out what's happening, than just getting lost in the story then something's wrong yeah and, and and in terms of the cg too for me i don't know about for you guys but i mean for example katie you would have seen this scene already but the first time that he meets pesci in the film and pesci's calling him kid 
Yeah. And I'm like, he he looks like he's forty. He looks yes. like he's five. I'm I'm forty four. He looks like my age. Right now. <laughs> like, you know. And there's also it's worth looking up. There's a guy on YouTube that has done the um the real fake, you know, or yes. whatever it's called. That is and creepy. He, and, and he titled it like Netflix spends millions. Here's off the off the shelf software. And his version of shots from the Irishman, he puts them side by side, look better to me than than what was on screen. Hmm. On top of that, you have, it's essentially face replacement over some of our greatest actors. So how much are you affecting the emotions they're emoting because you're essentially replacing their face? That's an like, excellent point, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, at what point we, are we taking away from De Niro's performance just to make him a little bit younger? Yeah, and we also as viewers, because, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if you showed like, you know, a 16 year old kid this movie and he had no idea who they were, if they would even quite realize, because I know when they did like Rogue One, some, some younger kids didn't know that, that the actor from 1977 Star Wars was no longer with us. But for me, I know what these guys look like now. I don't know if, you know, a 16 year old, if that would register, but it took me 30 or 40 minutes probably of this sort of cognitive dissonance between me going, this is not what these guys look like. And then just being able to sort of sit back and say, okay, just watch the movie. My hope for Scorsese, and again, so much respect for his early work, right? Like this groundbreaking bill to your point that my hope was when he got the Oscar for The Departed, which I didn't like at all. And we're not gonna go deep dive on, on that. People have different opinions. I thought, well, now he can start doing something new and creative again. Like this is sort of recognizing the work we've done and let's see something new. And I, I guess I just, this exhausted me a little bit. I just felt actually like we're still missing out on, on, on their greatest work instead of visiting this. Yeah, as a friend of mine said, all right, well, I watched, uh, I watched uh, Irishman through eight hours. Like, <laughs> it, just, it, it just it feels like a slog. And it's like, so either make it a small miniseries, make it four two-hour episodes that you can get lost in and even put more into it, or make it at most a two and a half to three hour movie at most. I mean, it's three and a half. Once you cross that three hour barrier, 245, then you, you're like, well, I could watch two different movies in the same time frame. It's like, it becomes, it becomes time effective. And it, it's like, you start to like, okay, how much more are you actually telling me in this extra time? I think it also is just, I mean, in, in many ways, it's just down to story because, you know, if you go back to like Braveheart, Braveheart's a three hour movie, I could watch that movie Mm -hmm. you know uh, tons of times um dance with the wolves no matter how you feel about it i like it i could watch that i don't watch it as frequently as maybe braveheart or something like that but um but not next you, to goodfellas come <laughs> on no, 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 i'm I not mean, no i know i mean yeah sean no, wants to go down and tear down right. every scorsese no, 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 no. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot stand in a field of wheat without putting my hands out and feeling the topic just hoping that graham green is in the woods watching but, no but i'm i was i was firmly even as a kid i was in the goodfellas should have won and i still am but i'm just saying in terms of being a three because i don't think goodfellas is three hours right it's like something 240 or something yeah I think. so yeah. like but but once you sort of get to that three hour threshold it's like you better be really getting me invested in in you know everything about this story and i don't personally for me the irishman never did that do you guys know anyone on that's on this team um have you guys worked with david webb he was the first uh jeremy marks was the key second um bunch of other uh seconds additional seconds anybody worked with those guys no 
because yeah. uh, I, I mean, because you probably won't now either. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, no. no, here you go. Here you go. Give me a cup point. I was a additional PA on Aviator, as I've talked about many times here on the show. And it was two days of work. And but the fanboy in me was just going nuts the entire time, trying to keep my shit together. Like Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese. And, you know, but then being totally professional, of course, at the same time. And, uh, you know, it's uh, those sets are very serious. You know, it's like I know that it doesn't matter anything that we're complaining about with how we reacted as an audience. I know that those guys did an excellent job, but I'm sure that that was not an easy shoot more than once. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) I have to ask you a question then, Bill, because I heard a rumor back in the day on Aviator that, that Mr. Scorsese hates noise in all forms. Yeah. And I I'm heard a, somebody I'm, said I'm when I'm the Teamsters... Gonna, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to talk about it on the show. I'll tell you. <laughs> okay. I don't see the word button. It's okay. a story I tell all the time. Believe me. Okay, I got to hear it because somebody okay. said, listen, the not Teamsters... Not when there's a recording going. <laughs> right. That's... <laughs> they would say they said when the Teamsters drove by the trailer, they had to kill the the engine on the vans. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, we weren't there for that, so we don't know if it's true or not. But let's move on. <laughs> let's move on to our next film. Uh, Quentin Tarantino nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, for those who are not aware, we did a podcast specifically about this film. You should go check it out. Bill was on that podcast, so Bill, why don't you wait to give your opinion of the movie? <laughs> Katie or Sean, you guys take it from there. I will say, I think this is arguably my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. It's still not my favorite amongst these five nominees, but of all the Quentin Tarantino movies, it's my favorite. It's the most lighthearted. It's the, I mean, there is still the classic Quentin Tarantino violence, but it's less than all of the others. I, I just, I actually really enjoyed watching this movie, which, you know, I loved all the Spawn Ranch sequences. I mean, I thought Brad Pitt did a fantastic job on this movie. I really enjoyed this movie. I loved it. And it has another really great (laughs) one-er. The Bruce Lee (laughs) bit is another. I watched it on the screener and I rewound it. Like, holy shit, I think that's a one-er. And I went back and watched it. Like, it really was. That was really well done. You could tell when the stunt double steps in just to throw, you know. I'm like, this is really well done. I like, again, I'm a sucker for a (laughs) one-er. Yeah, I loved it too. I thought it was fantastic. The the third act sort of twist really just knocked me back. And I was like, it, it was just so much fun. And not only, I mean, then I watched it again, just to look at technical things like the like the Warner or production design. I mean, Hollywood Boulevard, I grew up in LA. I mean, it was like, a lot of that was still looked that way when I was a little kid. So I was like, my God, like the, just the scale of this thing, driving well, up to the- 101. The KHJ, man. I, yeah. KHJ, like every time they played this, that little uh, motto from the radio station, I'm like, oh, I remember hearing that all the time. It's like, yeah, it brought me back to being a kid in L.A. Yeah, it was, I thought it was excellent. Yeah. All right, Bill, we don't want to go for like two hours, <laughs> but uh, why don't you weigh no, in I'll be, well. I mean, if, if uh, the fans who heard my uh, worshipping on the other podcast may uh, be surprised to hear me say this, but not, it's not my favorite Quentin movie and it's not my favorite uh, of the nominees either. It's, I mean, I love it. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, to Sean's point, it, uh, I never felt the time the way I felt the time on Irishman. 
and and it was a definite concern going in. I think I saw it on a weeknight in the summer where it was like, you know, oh, we're going to get out of the theater so late. I generally, I love longer movies. I mean, I almost feel like that's, you know, I grew up watching Ben-Hur on a regular basis. And, you know, two and a half was like, come on, let's, this value for my dollar. Um, <laughs> it's a great movie, not uh, my number one this year. I'm in the same boat with you, Bill, actually. It's not my favorite uh, Tarantino film. I just, that might still be Pulp Fiction. I'd have to pull up the list to see if anything's hopped over that for me. But just the way that moved and shocked me and the way that time jumps work, I'm someone that generally hates when they show something that happens at the end and they like go earlier because I feel like a properly dramatic story should be interesting to watch through, that you don't have to have a spoiler in order to enjoy what's going on now. And if you do, the movies week. And so it's always a pet peeve of mine, but like Pulp Fiction, not what we're going deep on, but did that in a way and added layer to the other stories with the time jumps that really impressed me. And so, uh, but Tarantino in general, yes, big fan. This movie, just watching it, I enjoyed it. And in the end, wasn't moved as much as I was by the other stuff. It might be just because there is such a high bar for me on the stuff that I've enjoyed of his, that this felt to your point, Kay, I think it is you know funny in ways that the other ones aren't, and loving in ways that a lot of his movies aren't. Um, and I guess this, those don't appeal to me on quite the same level. But I did enjoy watching it through the whole thing, and I looked like it was a lot of work, as we talked about on a podcast. They don't do any digital work on his stuff; like they are changing the billboards and fixing the signs, and every detail is supposed to be that time period. And I think it works really well. Well, wait a minute. I, but I, I did listen to that episode, and I got to say, oh, no, everything's practical, everything's practical. There's an above-the-line title for the VFX supervisor. What is that VFX <laughs> supervisor doing? He's making them all look younger. That. <laughs> <laughs> they almost never give an above-the-line title to the VFX supervisor unless there's heavy VFX. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm not saying that everything was VFX by no means, and there's probably a lot of fix-it-here, fix-it-there stuff but there's not no VFX because there's a freaking VFX supervisor right there. That just pointed that one out. Okay. That's good. You got to keep us honest. I don't recall <laughs> that from the credits and we didn't have the VFX supervisor on the podcast. So yeah, we don't know for sure. And since that, anyway. and, and it's that guy, here, guy or, or, or female or lady. So I, I, but I'm sure that that person is now sitting there going, I took so many fucking water bottles. Out <laughs> That's why it was because people were just walking around throwing water bottles everywhere. Fair. And that and like Starbucks cups. Yeah, right. <laughs> water bottles and Starbucks cups. It earns you above the line credit because uh, there was so much to be done. And it's the only way we can keep the quote unquote everything practical approach to it. I think it's a good question. I think that there's a, uh, Sean, have you done any research on that? You know anything about where visual effects is on that or is it? A no, not, not on, not on once upon a time now. What about sequences in there that were particularly challenging, you guys think, from an AD perspective? I mean, Hollywood Boulevard's got to be well, just yeah. a nightmare, right? Yeah. I mean, it's driving. It's it's also driving stuff. So you got you know you got whatever insert car, and then you got just exterior shots from the sidewalk as he's passing, and they were all over Hollywood. I mean, they were up like Dower Street where he sees the girl on the on the bus bench, and they're like, any of that must have been crazy. And then they have. I want to say there's a night scene with his car driving up the 101 or when he's going to Spawn Ranch or something. And they just had to control that stretch from like by the Capitol Records between Vine and like Cahuenga. Crazy. 
I would though. I like, I know. And then my mind gets consumed. You never see a rolling police lockup anywhere but LA. Like I am maybe other people, maybe DC, maybe for, I've never seen them in DC skid. Maybe you have, but I don't know for political politicians and whatnot, but, uh, and, but yeah, that must've been insane in front of Capitol records. I can only imagine. Well, as yeah. an aside, I actually did some work on the John Kerry campaign back in the day and was in charge of motorcade for my little advanced team. And so I did see police uh, in practice with the row of cars and the police doing rolling uh, lockups on a, on a freeway down in Florida where I was for a month or so. But uh, completely aside. Um, yeah, but that goes back that. to the, the, you know, it's like people laugh at us when we say things like, you know, we operate like the military. Uh, we operate, we're kind of like first responders, uh, you know, and then, you know, of course, no, we're all assholes, but at the same time, like nobody else does this shit but us. So how else are we supposed to feel about it? Like, no, I'm not a God, but I might be a hero. You know, half God, half human. Yeah. I mean, Diplomatic you know, just... is cinematic community. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice, lethal two callback. Thank but, you. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, just I mean, if you think of the logistics of having whatever that was, maybe twenty five nineteen sixties era cars on that freeway, when you once you get up past you know Coenga, getting them back down, how, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like this is your one, just a quick trip over the mountain. You know, like you know, it's, coming it's just, resetting well, back to one is like it's, 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 again, just like 1917. The resets, the resets. It's like yeah, oh, it's just like the resets. Everybody oh, off the ramp by the Ford Theater. Go to Franklin. Hang a left. Go to you know. It's like <laughs> God. It's gonna take an hour. I think you just film it once a day, and then you just come back the next day guess, yeah. with everything reset, and then uh, or move yeah, on to some other scene. <laughs> you know, lunch lunch is at the other end. Lunch <laughs> is at the other end. They drive, they have lunch. Take two is after lunch, and that's your day. Well, Mark told I was talking to Skid about this. Mark told us they were based. He said we were at Musso and Frank's for two weeks. That's probably the perfect base that for that the, roundabout. You probably could shoot four different scenes in that roundabout actually if you did it right all right i'm sorry i'm starting to schedule the scene <laughs> no <laughs> yeah mark was the sound mixer on that and he did uh because he's not but that does add some some more insight into what they were doing there well let's move on to the final film in this category uh jojo rabbit and the nominee taika waititi sean why don't you start off on this give us a little background on what you were doing in prague as the project coordinator for post uh, well, so I live over here now. I work at a post company. We do visual effects and, and dailies processing, things like that. So my job was uh, liaising with the director, the DP, the producer, the editor um, about what their needs were in terms of processing dailies, uh, delivering dailies back to them, getting them a, an onset uh, colorist, an onset DIT, um, all of these sorts of things. They filmed the entire movie here. Uh, they were here, I want to say, three, four months when uh, they had the editor here the entire time. And they went away and came back for maybe a month of pickups. This my, is my favorite. Sorry, sorry, Bill. You go. You we go, were both go. very excited to say it. Yes, me too. My, 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 I, you know, not just because Sean's here, but I, I, I loved it. Yeah, I loved every second of it. It was so bizarre and different. And then it's so heartfelt too. And you just fall for these little kids and just watching his heartbreak. And as he grows, 
there's so much to love about this movie. And it takes you a second to realize what's happening. But once you're in it, I just got so into it. And there's, I love everything about this movie. Kid in the cardboard uniform is just, I mean, I'm crying laughing. And at the same time, I'm like, they actually did this. Those yeah. bastards. I, yeah. I mean, they send, they put kids in cardboard and put them on the, but it's hilarious to see it. You can only laugh or cry. So that's how you have to react to half of this movie. It's easy to forget that there were little kids growing up in Berlin in 44, you know, and uh, it's an amazing story. I mean, Scarlett Johansson was fantastic. There's so much that's from the kid's perspective that's mm -hmm. not getting beat over your head uh, to remind you that this is what really happened. So you do have to have a little bit of, uh, dare I say, intelligence or education to know, but I don't know. I met a guy a couple of weeks ago that had never heard of Auschwitz and my mind was blown. That's the way the world is these days, people. You try not to yell at people. And then I'm like, you know, I got to say this guy, I, I think you should go see Jojo Rabbit. Like, <laughs> what, 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 is that going to happen? Probably not. <laughs> I, uh, I have to say, I, my feelings on the movie were a little different. I think the points you've made about what's strong about the movie I think Scarlett Johansson's performance is great. I think the kids are amazing. I think a lot of what they do. Um, I think that um, sort of as embodied by Rebel Wilson, uh, it doesn't quite seem to be in the same movie. And I think some of the tonal issues there, I think really make this, like I didn't get over that. Those feelings from the beginning about going back and forth. And so there are some twists and things later that I actually really liked about the movie. Again, I think with those primary folks, strong case for it but overall i was left feeling that this is really really hard and i admire it being done and i'm all in favor of the movie being done the way it was but it didn't quite work for me how it came together when the adults get campy it's the kids perspective though would be my take on it like you know it's that charlie brown wow 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 it's like to a kid when you with to a 10 year old hanging out with nazis that's probably and you know and sam rockwell you know i watched uh, Richard Jewell and texted my best friend. Sam Rockwell is a national treasure that is not respected in any way, shape, or form the way he should be. And he's amazing in this movie, too. It's, I mean, you know, I know people watch that movie and don't get that he's supposed to be gay. And that's, you know, it's not beating you over the head with it. It's this is the way it looks to a 10 year old. Is the way the world doesn't even and, understand what right day exactly. Is. Yeah. Like, that's for us to figure out. That's for the audience to figure out, and just let the story go, keep going the way it is. And I, I that whole the shot when he sees the two of them come up, oh, it's either, in the, his his homemade uniform. I was that whole subplot was just so beautiful. I just love that character. The kids are amazing too. Don't you know? I'm only talking about Sam Rockwell, but. But anytime you have a kid who can completely unironically deliver the line, it's a bad time to be a Nazi with a completely straight face. I mean, I literally laughed out loud alone in my own home. I'm like, that is the most unbelievably line. And but the delivery, the delivery, I mean, just seeing it on the page, I would if I just read the script, it would have been like, okay, yeah, that's funny. His delivery 
was so perfect. I don't know how you could have done it better. I don't, I literally don't know how that delivery could have been any funnier or with more heart and just like perfect for the moment because he literally meant it. It's a bad time to be a Nazi. I'm like, yeah, that, that, that little boy um, is now going to head up the new Fox version reboot of Home Alone. Uh, he is now running Fox Studios. <laughs> <laughs> Shit moves quick in this town. No, well, but know, even like watching, watching the dailies of that, I mean, that little boy, we were like, oh, man, that kid. That kid's a standout. He steals all his scenes, quite frankly. It's really good. Yeah. But, I, you know, that brings up a thing with kids. I think as much, you know, it's not my favorite movie of the group, but I think it goes to the director's credit when children put in performances that are really amazing. Yes, they can bring talent and they, you know, do um, amazing work even as a young person. And, and, and I've seen it myself on set. But when you see a movie and the kids don't do well, it takes away, it, it, in my mind, it takes away from the director because that's, if you have great actors, uh, great actors can bring it all the time if you cast like that. But with kids, you don't always know and coaxing that performance out of them to match the film and that, that I give that credit yes to the actor, but uh, it's bonus points to the director as well. On that. No, I was just saying, I think in this case, definitely Taika, you know, because I would see Raw Daily. So he's, he worked with those kids very closely. Um, a lot of, you know, keep the camera rolling. Let's try it again. Try it like this. Try it like this. But to jump back to the previous film, I just want to call out that little girl, Julia Butters. Yes. Wow, man. That kid yeah. is something else. Yes. I don't know if that's Tarantino. I have a feeling I've seen her do some Q&As. I mean, she's like a little grown-up. I watched that. I was like, this is like Natalie Portman again. We're seeing. Yes. Well, that's kind of what I was about to say. It's like to find one kid, like in Once Upon a Time, you can find a diamond and get lucky. And with just a little bit of polish, you have this phenomenal kid actor. But to find two and to have them work together, because you find one kid and get them opposite an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio. And even if, I think she's amazing, but even if she weren't, you can get her there with all of these things around you. When you have two kids with almost no experience and they're only op acting opposite each other, then that's on the director to get them to do that correctly. And those two kids, all of their scenes with just the two of them are so fantastic. Yeah. And, and Thomason as well, uh, you know, the yes. girl up in the attic. And she's also another one. She's like a little savant. I don't know if you've seen her in other films, but mm -mm. she is just phenomenal. She did a film with um, not Chris Pine, the other actor from Hell and High Water, Ben Foster. Oh, Ben Foster. Ben Foster. Yeah, yeah. She does a film where they like, they're like nature people. They like live in the forest and he's trying to raise her off the grid. And she's like mind blowing. And so as soon as they said, oh yeah, the girl playing the girl in the attic, well, for the shoot is Thomas and Mackenzie. I was like, oh, wow, okay, it's gonna be impressive. Mm -hmm. what, what are the kids' nationalities? Uh, Roman Davis is British, Archie's British, Thomason is uh, Kiwi. Okay, all right, uh, just curious. Because, uh, you know, and that's the other, I was just thinking about the AD perspective of the reasons this movie would be like a nightmare on paper, kids, <laughs> Period. You know, kid action, with the special explosions. effects makeup for most oh. of it. So what? you lose time going into makeup. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, kid with special effects makeup. So you lose time for him to go into makeup every day to get the scar on his face. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Oh, that's, the that best, that's the best part with kid movies when they're like, no, they're kids. Just let them, like, yeah. oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, we'll just get them on set. There's no point in trying to get them to sit in a chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like that's, there's more 
there's there's so many little things. I've seen directors, I'm not going to say a name, but they know who they are, almost drown a kid in a movie. <laughs> that was, you know, this kid was, oh my God, it was horrible to witness. <laughs> and at the same time to, to, you know, okay, let's, to hear him, you know, well, it's not going to get any better than that. I guess we should move on. <laughs> and uh, it's like, so I, I know that that's hard talking to a kid. I've seen guys do it beautifully before too. And, well, and keep I think, in mind too that Taika had to talk to the kid while wearing a Hitler mustache. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. What? Maybe it's good that he's not fully in experience who Hitler was yet. <laughs> he, he literally, Taika was like, you know, well, I, I had to say, okay, I'd like you to do this. It's not an order. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the challenges. Have you guys worked on a film where your director was also acting? Like, uh, there's, there's got to be special challenges for the AD team on something like that. Yeah, I did, but it's not quite the same. I've done, uh, I did a Clint Eastwood movie. I did Million Dollar Baby, which is where I got to go to the DJ Awards, and we won. We never for a split second thought we were getting up on stage. That was never, <laughs> that was not even close. Uh, but yeah, so the scenes where Clint, he was very happy in the scenes where he didn't have, or the days that he knew he didn't have a scene. So he could just kind of show up and do his thing and not, he gets very little hair and makeup, to be honest. It's mostly haircuts and just make sure it's not getting too froey. Yeah, he was very happy when he didn't have to think about the lines he had to memorize on top of focusing on directing. Now, looking at that team, it looks like the first AD, Mark Taylor, I'm not familiar with him, but the rest of the team looks like they're Czech. Is that uh, yeah, your Mark experience, Sean? Yeah, Mark Taylor, he actually lives over here. He's a, I think he's a Brit, but he lives here, and the rest are, are Czech uh, local. I think it's pretty cool, you guys. You know, the DGA has got all the Koreans in, in uh, Parasite. you got some Czechs over here. I'm actually <laughs> curious if they're going to get on the plane. <laughs> Let's put a pin in that and wrap it up for today. Next episode, we'll continue our discussion with DGA novels. In the meantime, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-C. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where your rating and comments really do help us reach new listeners. And Facebook, where, for your visual entertainment, I post photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I hope you'll join us again for part two of the DGA Conversation.